From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. I first visited what was then called Soviet Georgia back in 1972, and I was stunned. Suddenly, in the midst of all the drabness of the USSR, I found myself surrounded by color and music and incredible food, a vibrant culture, and people with expansive personalities. Over the years, I've returned to independent Georgia many times, but it wasn't always for happy reasons. I was there during the Georgian Civil War in 1992, during the ferment of the Rose Revolution in November 2003, and And I covered the Russo-Georgian War in 2008 from Moscow. So it's a turbulent history. And right now, Georgia once again is on the verge of change. It's looking west to Europe, but it has challenges. It's not a member of NATO, but it did join the Partnership for Peace back in 1994. And it sent two infantry battalions to serve with U.S. forces in Afghanistan. And then in March of 2022, Georgia applied for membership in the European Union. The EU said it was ready to grant membership, but it outlined 12 priorities that Georgia needs to address in order to be admitted to the EU. A few years ago in Tbilisi at a security conference, I met Tinatin Hirasheli. She's known as Tina, and I never forgot her. At that point, she was Georgia's Minister of Defense, the first female in that post. She was a former member of parliament, and I could see that she was a real dynamo who was fighting for human rights and against corruption in Georgia. Now she's chairperson of the Georgian think tank Civic Idea, and I'm very happy that she can join me for today's Kenan X podcast. Welcome, Tina. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jill, for having me on this podcast. Great. Well, let's continue that conversation that we started five years ago. And then I actually saw you here in D.C. just a few days ago at another conference. But I was thinking of this. In March of this year, the world saw that dramatic footage of a woman in Tbilisi. She was on the streets and she was part of a huge protest against a law that was similar to Russia's foreign agent law. And it would put enormous pressure on civil society. And remember, you know, the protests were drenched by water cannon, but the woman picked up the EU flag, struggled forward, and then some men joined her, and it was quite a scene. Tina, could you tell our listeners about that? What exactly was happening? Obviously, it was inspirational, but it also raises questions about whether Georgia can actually reach its aspirations to join the West fully. Well, Today, unfortunately, when we speak particularly about Georgia's foreign affairs, there are lots of problems domestically, lots of political confrontation amongst the political parties. But that's not what we are going to talk about today. When we talk about the foreign policy that Georgian government has today, choices that they make since the brutal aggression of Russia in Ukraine are, to say it mildly, very problematic. There are lots of people out there in the West, particularly in Europe, particularly in Brussels, who refer to Georgia's current government as pro-Russian. 
And obviously, it's very damaging for the reputation of this country. It's very damaging for the future of this country, for the most important thing that is escaping this Russia's world and joining free Western world. Because we know in international politics, a lot is about the perceptions. And where the perceptions are formed in this way that there is a pro-Russian government running Tbilisi right now, now, we face problems every day, basically, in every single direction you look at being NATO, European Union, bilateral contacts and relations with our strategic partners, etc. Last March events, a vivid example and vivid demonstration of that problem, because suddenly out of blue, literally saying out of blue, Georgian government came up with this idea of copy-pasting Russian foreign agents law that, as we all know, this allowed the activities of most of civil society representatives in Russia who, at the end of the day, were forced to escape the regime. They've kicked out lots of international organizations, donor organizations, have problems with both domestic and international civil society players, as well as with free media. And obviously, we all understand it. Once there is a legalized pressure over the non-governmental organizations, next usually is media and journalists are kind of in a row to be victims in yeah, the same way. And it is important to know, as you've said, Jill, that a year ago, under the huge pressure from the Georgian society, Georgian civil society, as well as general public, government was forced to launch an application for the EU membership, together with Ukraine and Moldova. We were the last, we were late, and it took our government thousands and thousands to be drawn to the streets to actually make that decision. But finally, it happened on 1st of March last year government launched this application. And obviously, there was an understanding that from that day on, we should have done everything possible, everything in our power to convince our partners, to convince Brussels, both bilaterally as well as bureaucrats, that Georgia deserved first the European perspective, the status of membership, and then finally, eventually, the membership to the European Union. And instead of that, Georgian government started sabotaging this process. And this foreign agents law was one of those, I would say, biggest mistakes that they've made on that road, because that was kind of a last drop for everybody in that country that is fighting for the last 30 years since the day one of its independence with the European Union and NATO flex in its hands for its sovereignty and independence from Russia. And everybody, everybody, people who are not politically engaged at all, people who probably never even voted in their life, everybody understood why government was doing what they were doing and what it meant, what cost we would have if government was successful passing this Russian law. And then in a matter of hours, through social media, Facebook, Twitter, people got mobilized and we had these huge crowds on the streets of the capital city youngsters, Gen Zs, millennials, like everybody, pensioners, everybody was on the streets with one message. Everybody was carrying European Union flags. I've never seen, actually, Europeans said that they've never seen so many European flags on the streets in their life hmm. because that was the way Georgians expressed the reasoning behind this massive march on the streets, that Georgia belongs to Europe, there is no force that will stop this desperate attempt of the Georgian society and Georgian people to get through and to escape this vicious circle that Russia created around us and finally get a secure future for its kids and for themselves, I mean, for the generation that lives in Georgia today. Government tried hard. Demonstrations lasted for three days. They almost became violent, but finally they understood that there was no backing off. 
And after using the water cannons, using the rubber bullets, the gas, all the means for dispersing demonstrations, when people were coming back in even bigger numbers, they understood that it was not happening. And finally, they withdrew the legislation. It was a very important moment, not only because we won that fight, but also because it empowered people even more. People started to believe again that there was power in them and they were actually in charge of the country. And this woman that you mentioned, these pictures that went viral on social media, it was picked up by the international press and it was everywhere on CNN, on BBC, all the papers were putting this picture on their pages, obviously demonstrates very well the very spirit of those events. The Georgian government put that flag on the ground, walked on that European flag, basically denying the European future to the people. And then political opposition, civil society, media, general public, ordinary voters picked up that flag exactly like that woman did and went in this fight and hold the flag until the very moment, until the moment the victory was declared. And we plan on carrying this flag to the very last moment, as long as Georgia will not become the member of the European Union, as well as NATO. Unfortunately, NATO is even bigger problem today for us because that discourse is completely gone from the public discussions in Georgia. Mm. But I'm pretty sure that towards the upcoming Washington-NATO summit, people will get same active on that issue as well, and we will have our own victory as a society. At the end of the day, mm -hmm. it's a decision by the member states, but as a society, we also need, ourselves need that victory for feeling stronger and feeling in ownership of the country. Obviously, we intend to continue that fight to the end before Georgia will eventually get the membership to both European Union and NATO and ensure its sovereignty, which has been under the attack all this time, during all these years, during all the three decades of independence. It is only European Georgia, NATO member Georgia, that will ensure that kind of security and sovereignty that we need for the development, for securing the future as an independent state. You know, speaking of sovereignty, you do have problems. I mean, physical sovereignty of Abkhazia and South Ossetia, which Russia took during that war and continues right now to be held, at least there are Russian troops there. So what is the status of that? And is it as big a stumbling block, let's say, for joining the EU or for joining NATO in the future? Well, yeah, it is a serious problem for those of our listeners who do not know. 20% of the Georgia territories is occupied by Russia. The occupation is very much visible, very much tangible. We have three Russian military bases on the Georgian territory, and that is outside the control of the government in the capital city in Tbilisi. We do not have an actual warfare right now. Since 2008, there is officially declared ceasefire. But unfortunately, it does not stop Russian forces to act on a daily basis. And this action means sometimes grabbing little land here and there. Sometimes it means kidnapping people for ransom. They found this extra income for the Russian soldiers found an extra income for themselves by kidnapping people who go to their gardens, orchards, or go to the forest with their cattle or try to, I don't know, gather mushrooms or whatever forest gives them. And then immediately the Russian soldiers appear there and negotiations start on certain amounts of money for freedom. But 
that's not even the worst case scenario because unfortunately we also have if the guy is too proud or um, dares to ask questions or confront, then unfortunately it ends with the death. And we just had two weeks ago yet another Georgian man killed by the Russian militaries right in front of the church only because and there's a video proving it that when he saw the Russian soldiers there, he just asked them a question what they were doing there, why they were on Georgian territory in Georgian village in front of the Georgian church. And they just shot him right there hmm. in front of his friend who was kidnapped. But they understood that the problem was really severe. And then in a couple of days, the other guy was released unharmed. But unfortunately, another Georgian lost his life towards the occupying force. This is everyday life of Georgia. And Russians make sure, actually, what is important is the timing of that accident, because it happened right on the day when Georgia was expecting the announcement of recommending the candidate status to the European Union. It happened right on that day when the whole country lived for that moment, sitting in front of TV stations, waiting for the announcement for Brussels. And instead of this announcement, yeah, we've heard about the incident and the murder mm. of another Georgian guy. And why they do it, it's very obvious because, of course, it's not random. Of course, it's not just by accident, but it all has its own purpose and goal to make sure that we don't forget that they are there. And every time mm -hmm. Georgia makes strong steps towards European Union, united in bilateral cooperation with the United States or with NATO, something like that happens to remind to average Georgian citizens that Russia is there, they are watching, and they will not allow for Georgia's success. And that's our everyday life. This is why we are so desperate and so motivated to everything possible in our hands, in the hands of the society, to get out of that darkness that Russia tries to get us all the time. Mm. You know, one thing, and maybe we could just briefly, because there's so much to talk about, but one thing that I always have difficulty understanding, and I know it's politically very complex in Georgia, but how does a government that, well, let's say charitably, we could say can't make up its mind as to whether to be in the West or with Russia, but how does a government continue to rule if the people actually do want a European direction. How does that happen? Well, we have elections next year, and the government that we have in place, prime minister that we have in place, was never elected. The leader of the party who ran the elections in 2020 for the ruling party is long gone, and he's in opposition. If you have him now on this interview, he will talk the same language I do. There is no difference. So, yeah, literally, I mean, it is the same party, obviously, who won 2020 elections, but its leadership is completely changed since the elections. But unfortunately, in our system, we do not have a typical parliamentary, European parliamentary democracy system. If there is a government failure, then they resign and there are snap elections. We do not have that. So we are mm -hmm. waiting for our elections. That is every four years. It is going to happen next year in October. We do understand there is always a revolutionary way, but we don't want to do that. We did it so many times. We had government change by different ways, with the revolutionary mood at place. And we understand that usually with this kind of huge excitement that comes with revolution, then there is a big downfall coming. And for the first time, regardless of all the hardship and problems, Georgians, the political opposition, active members of the society, social elites have decided that whatever it is, it is. 
We will fight every time, every day, every step. If something really horrible happens with this government, but we will get through the elections and have a big change coming. But again, with the understanding that every time they put our European future at risk, they will be there. And we will not let them to make those big mistakes, irreversible mistakes. Of course, they make mistakes every day. Every time they show up on TV, it's a disaster. But when it comes to irreversible mistakes that will define Georgia's future differently, then we are there. And we don't let them mm-hmm. to do that. You know, Russia in many countries in the region certainly interfere in elections in various ways, sometimes through corruption, sometimes electronically or, let's say, digitally, etc. But do you think that that election coming up can be an honest election? And do you see evidence that Russia is trying to influence it in any way? Well, unfortunately, Georgia is kind of a country, same probably as all former Soviet republics, except for the Baltic states. Yes, you have a huge influence from Russia, soft power, hot power, sharp power, you name it. (laughs) Well, including in Georgia, we have even their militaries, obviously, standing 40 kilometers from the capital city, not that far away. But the problem when it comes to the elections is more with the domestic players. The falsification, manipulation with the vote, absence of the availability of free choices, actually, for the people, absence of a sound political debate. It's not because of Russia. It's because of the sitting government at place who refuses already for three years to participate in any debate with anybody. Mm-hmm. So it's, there is no political show in a country that runs debates live or recorded or in whatever shape. Government refuses to appear on TVs they don't like or they consider being critical. And the TV stations that favor government policies never host opposition leaders. So that level of depolarization we have. They cannot even breathe in the same room when it comes to the political debate and actually something that is so fundamentally important in a democracy and for the elections is completely absent in Georgia. And of course, it's not the only problem. We have problem with the manipulation with the vote because the poverty and unemployment is very high in Georgia. Obviously, manipulation with the people who basically fight for food every day is not that difficult. But there is one good thing about Georgia, regardless of all the attempts of any sitting government for this last 30 years, Georgian people never made a mistake on historical elections. Never. We had a power change every time when government was risking the future of the country. Because of that, Mm -hmm. you've mentioned in the beginning in your introduction, Rose Revolution. This is why the Rose Revolution happened. Rose Revolution hosted from power the guy who was darling of the West, former foreign minister of Soviet Union, Mr. Shevardnadze, whom everybody was grateful to, partly together with Gorbachev for ending the Iron Carson, ending the Cold War. But as soon as that government became deeply corrupt, obstructed democratic development of the country, as soon as the country was run by the relatives and close allies of Shevardnadze, rather than official government public institutions, people rose and we had change. We had dramatic change of power. President, parliament, the whole thing, the ruling party was gone. 2012, again, another darling of the West, particularly of the US government, Mr. Saakashvili, who was the president of Georgia for eight years, 
was changed in a peaceful electoral revolution. We call it electoral revolution because there was a landslide victory of the opposition with the turnout Georgia has never seen before. Because everybody understood that with the level of manipulation and falsification of the election, Saakashvili's government was capable of, normal turnout could not help. And people were driving five, six, ten hours even sometimes just to cast the vote. Hmm. Unfortunately, because of the level of poverty, majority of the population lives in big cities, but they are still registered as voters in the villages and regions where they come from. And on that day, on the election day, around 4 or 5 p.m., we already knew I was in opposition at that time. I already knew that I won my district and all my friends knew we won the elections because at 5 o'clock, turnout was so high. There was no way any government could have manipulated that vote. And I'm pretty sure the same is going to happen in 2024, regardless of all the art of falsification that Georgian government invented as it is at place with the help of Russians. Nothing and nobody can stop the will of the people when it is so strongly expressed. And what we saw last March on the streets of Tbilisi is exactly that will that will be translated in 2024 in a voting polling station. When we saw each other here in D.C. just recently, there were a couple of other women from Georgia, very impressive, who are members of parliament as well. And I'm just interested in the role of women in politics and civil society in general. I mean, there you were, let's say, head of the military, the defense ministry, and then you got into civil society, the head of a civil society organization. Why did you take that path? And tell me something about the role of women in government in Georgia, because I think of Georgia, I have to be honest, as pretty male-oriented society, and yet there you are, very active. So tell me how that works. Yeah, it is very conservative society, absolutely, very male-dominated. There is almost no political party that is run by women, for example. You do not really have women in political party leadership that much. Although we have women president at this moment. Mm -hmm. We had woman president, interim president was a woman as well before years back. And I was in a position that is considered to be very much male job in Georgia. And I would say not only in Georgia, in most of the countries probably. But sometimes men make those kinds of mistakes. If there is a very strong will and very strong political power shown by women. And that's one of the reasons why we came to Washington with these women, very terrific, young, brilliant Georgian women parliamentarians who are actually one of the main reasons why we had march demonstrations. If it was not for them, not only for them, but I mean for women parliamentarians from the opposition, different opposition parties in parliament, Probably the knowledge and information about the consequences of that law would not be available for public. It was them who raised their voice. They were the first ones who protested in parliament. And because their voices were not heard, they were very innovative and very theatrical mm-hmm. for making points and showing to everybody how dramatic that law was for the future of Georgia. That's only one case. We have lots of situations like that. So women politicians were also driving force of the entire movement that started in Georgia since the Russia's aggression in Ukraine, of this fight of disobedience, fight of resilience that is shown by the society towards Russian occupying forces in the light of the war in Ukraine. Women politicians were the ones who, including the president of Georgia, 
who, in spite of the Georgia's government's very shameful position towards Ukraine, stood very strong, supporting Ukrainian people, supporting President Zelensky and the policy that Western governments have and the position Western governments have in this war. We wanted to show to the world that in spite of coming from a very, yes, conservative, male-dominated societies, we are not planning to sit back and be loyal and take the places, whatever places men will assign for us. We will fight for those places. And the reason why I took the position of a minister of defense was not because it was easy and comfortable job, no, just the other way around, but I just wanted to prove the point to all Georgian girls who are looking right now to their potential in public life, going into politics or in active society, that it works. You just need to try. Yeah, sometimes you need to try harder than men, but it works. And there are people out there who already did it and who are there for you and who are ready to help you every step of the way if you decide to do that. That's actually the reason why I brought these girls to Washington, used all my contacts, all my knowledge of the capital to introduce them to Washington and to show this force to other people as well, both in U.S. governments on Capitol Hill, as well as to the representatives of various think tanks in Washington. And I think it was a pretty good visit. And I think they managed to get the message through and to have everybody understand two things mainly. One, that we will fight for European Georgia. We will fight whatever it takes. So we need strong support from Washington. Yes, we do need that. But it's not like we are looking outside, not doing anything. No, we are fighting. We are doing our job. And we wanted everyone to be sure, both in Washington and also in other capitals of the member states, that with their support, we can together achieve that goal. And second, that we have very important elections next year. And again, we are going to do our job, but we need lots of monitoring. We need lots of observers coming to Georgia and helping us in that fight. Because even in 2012, when, as I said, we had this huge turnout and basically everybody who could walk showed up on the polling stations. And although, again, as I said, at 5 p.m., I already knew I won. At 11 p.m., I was not that sure anymore after the polling stations were closed because then the security forces showed up. And that Mm -hmm. was the moment when we made a call to our international community saying that, we did everything we could up until now. Go out to vote campaign worked. People made their choice. We fought for every vote. But now, counting that vote, now it's our common job. Because without the international observers, obviously there was no way we could have get those winning papers outside the polling stations and actually making them reality. And that's what we need next year as well. And that was one of the reasons also why we came to Washington. We know it's difficult here for you as well. It usually is like that. We have elections always (laughs) the same time, but US government is always there for us and we hope that it will be the same next year as well. Tina Hida Shelley, I want to ask you one more question, and you've been very generous with your time. Remember when we met, what, four or five years ago, and we had this conversation, and I've always thought about that, and I've thought about it in the context of other, let's say, countries that were part of the Soviet Union and often face this problem. And what you were saying 
was essentially that democracy can't just be, let's say, Jeffersonian ideals, abstract ideas, that people really need something tangible that helps them in their daily lives to actually prove to them that democracy is worth it. And you told me a story just the other day that was really interesting about some very specific payoffs that Georgians have from being closer to the West. And one of them was the issue of hepatitis. So I thought that was a very interesting thing. It was very specific and it was really illustrative of this issue and how it works in the lives of people. Yeah, I mean, it's not only about democracy, it's also about these partnerships, right, and cooperation. What the Russian propaganda tells to the people, at least in Georgia. Russian propaganda never tells to Georgia instead, oh, we are so nice, beautiful, brilliant, there is no better country than Russia, come join us. Of course, they don't, because they understand it. Having forcefully brought military bases and occupying part of your country does not make that case for any Georgia. So it's not going to work. It's whatever money they will spend, whatever year time they will spend, it's not going to fly. So that's why all their propaganda says is that, yeah, we understand there are problems with Russia and yeah, yeah, it's not like the best country to live in, but we are your only option because there is no one else out there in the world who cares about you and who wants you mm-hmm. on board. And of course, they use the prolonged process of Georgia's integration into NATO and European Union for their advantage, basically saying that, oh, you've been fighting for 30 years. Where did it get you? What are the benefits you have? And this is why it's very important that together with the political support, diplomatic support that we always have from our partners, and particularly from the United States, regardless of which party is in power, Georgia was blessed by bipartisan support always for all these 30 years. Republicans, Democrats, when it came to Georgia's occupation, Russian aggression, it was always extremely and exclusively supportive of Georgia's cause. But together with that, exactly to respond to that propaganda, We have those instruments. We have those wonderful stories that you don't need even to remind the people because they know firsthand that we had almost every fifth Georgian was carrying hepatitis C. Mm. Every prisoner in prisons, it was like very, very common problem. And then their family members, whomever they had a contact with, were infected as well. And well, statistically, it was every fifth person in Georgia. And now Georgia is hepatite-free country. And this elimination program was fully, 100%, run by the U.S. government. I don't exactly know which department, but U.S. government money. Mm -hmm. But it's not the only program that helped so many Georgians. I went for studies to the U.S. And lots of people like me, I was at Yale University. I was born in Soviet Georgia. I've graduated my high school still in the Soviet Union. It was 1990 when I graduated high school. And and then after that, when I went to the university, it was already independent Georgia. But my university years in independent Georgia were civil war, war in Abkhazia, war in South Ossetia, all five years. No electricity. No, I mean, literally speaking, I mean like 100% no electricity, no gas supply, no heating at home. Water was coming two hours a day or sometimes was not coming at all the whole day. Five years I was at the university living in a room without any heating or any water supply. And then Mm. I was at Yale University. One day I woke up in New Haven. In this haven, 
for someone coming from that kind of a country. And again, of course, I was not the only person. Georgia was, after Israel, was second most aided country by the United States government in all different directions, education, healthcare, agriculture, you name it. And of course, we are grateful for that. And it's not only being grateful, it's also understanding the benefit of the choices our ancestors made long time ago when they decided that our past was Christianity. Well, at that time, that's how you were making a choice in medieval ages. And then after breaking up from the Soviet Union, we said, yeah, we are going to NATO and European Union. And the United States is going to be our strategic partner, not Russia, not China, but the United States. And again, it's not necessarily only about this, because I can tell you easily, in 2008, Georgia wars lasted only five years, only because of the U.S. government's very strong policy. Immediately from the very second war broke up in Georgia and Russian soldiers entered the Georgian territory. It was President Bush's statements that stopped air bombing of Georgia's strategic objects. And nobody argues with that. And that's what's most important. But at the same time, of course, it helps to respond to Russia's propaganda that, no, we are welcomed. No, we are considered as friends. It's not just us, but it's mutual. And we have an understanding with our partners. And this is how democracies work. They help each other when there is a problem somewhere. Not like during the Soviet Union, when it was always requesting, requesting, requesting something from you and then nothing was happening. Mm. There are lots of stories like that. People will tell you stories amazing, unbelievable, that uh, things like that were happening. And it's important. And this is actually what brought people so massively on the streets over the years, whenever our Western past was under the threat. People mm. can't just imagine going back to Soviet Union or whatever will be equivalent of it as Russia and President Putin. Mm. Well, really, thank you so much, Tina Hidasheli, who was Georgia's Minister of Defense when I first met her and now is the chairperson of the Georgian think tank Civic Idea. Thank you very much for joining me on Canon X. And I'll be seeing you soon, actually, in March at a security conference back in Tbilisi again. I'm really looking forward to it. And thank you very much. Thank you, Jill. Thank you very much. It's a great honor for me to be guest in your show. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kenan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former Librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.